0: Do you ever daydream about what heaven will be like? Do you ever daydream about what heaven will be like? I wonder if like me over these last many months through all the turmoil that's happening in our culture in our lives, I wonder if like me you've started to and this doesn't make me, I don't think any like more holy than anyone, by the way, but you've just thought more and more and more and more about the next world because you're growing weary of this one. Am I alone in that? Have you prayed the, the last sentence of the Bible? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Have you prayed that? I know Susie and I at night when we pray often, Susie will pray or I'll pray. It seems like several times a week. Just come, Lord, please. Just come. We're sitting at lunch yesterday. We're just talking about all this stuff that's happening in our lives, our family, our friends, church, world. And I'm just weary. Do you think, though, do you think often about the next world? A new heaven and new earth where we will live with new bodies together with Christ. We will see his face. We'll give him hugs. (laughs) Can you believe that? Hugging Jesus Christ? Man. What images, what kind of images and thoughts and sensations, desires, ambitions come into your mind when you think about the next world? What kind of experiences come to mind when you think about heaven? And is there any place on earth where you can today see something of what you hope to see on that day in heaven? Is there anywhere we can look to see something of what we see in our brains, something we long for in our hearts? You're like, John, I really love my backyard. My patio is top notch. You know, my family gatherings around the Christmas dinner table were amazing and wonderful and so full of life and peace and joy. Well, those are glimpses of heaven in their own way, no doubt. But I have something else in mind. Is there a place on earth where you see something of what you hope to see in heaven? Yes, indeed, there is. If you've ever worshipped God with a local church according to the word of God, you have seen something of heaven. I would even dare to say that's what, that what's happening in this room right now, this morning, is a picture and a taste of heaven on earth. You're like, John, we didn't even have a smoke machine or, you know. I didn't know some of those songs in your... And your preaching is always too long, and you're talking about this is gonna be heavenly. Just bear with me. Bear with me. How can I make such a claim that what happens in a room like this with people like us ends up becoming a picture, a slice of heaven on earth? How can I say that? Well, it's based in the simple theological truth that God's presence, the God of heaven, his presence now lives with his people. God is literally with us, and we are with him right now, together, in this room. The God of heaven who needs no home has chosen to live with his people on the earth. His people are his temple, the place where his spirit dwells. Local churches like ours become little embassies of heaven or outposts of the kingdom of God on the earth, showing the world what heaven looks like as we embody the presence of God together, as we worship the presence of God, we enjoy the presence of God, we experience the presence of God together, we reveal the righteousness and truth and goodness and love and forgiveness and beauty of Jesus Christ together, we show the world a picture of the next world. The world, of course, is full of despair and fighting and doubt and fear and hate and selfish promotion. But what I'm arguing is that in a healthy local church, people can find peace and joy and hope and faith and love and righteousness and something of heaven itself. In a local church, people, the world, can find something of God's kingdom on the earth. As our culture continues to darken and fracture, this means that we have wonderful opportunities for the gospel to bear witness to the gospel to this generation. As our culture fractures, our unity in the gospel and our enjoyment of Jesus Christ begins to be a light, begins to be a light in a dark place. Professor Carl Truman says, in a world where the old ways of community have collapsed. Man, if that statement isn't true, can I say it again? Listen carefully. If this isn't true, I'll know what else is. In a world where the old ways of community have collapsed. I saw just the other day this guy tweeted. Um, this isn't infallible, but I think it's, there's some truth to it. He said, I don't, I don't think anyone over the age of 40 has friends anymore. That's so sobering, if that's even remotely true. Again, Professor Truman, in a world where the old ways of community have collapsed, people still want to belong. And he says, the church can be a stellar example of community to those crying out for love and a place to belong. The church can be an attractive place to those who are lost or wondering. End quote. Today I want to talk to you about what the church is, and I want to talk to you about how understanding what the church is relates to what we do in a room like this on a Sunday morning like this. What is the church, and how does that relate to the church's worship? There's so much that could be said about the church. I'm going to tick off a few statements here that could be sermons in and of themselves. The church is God's house. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the woman for whom Christ died. The church is the corpus, Latin for body of Christ. That's why we call it corporate worship, by the way. Not because we're some corporation, but we call it corporate because we're a corpus. We're body. We're the body of Christ. The church is the visible presence of Jesus in the world. The church is where the world can and must see, see, hear experience Jesus Christ. The church is made up of all of those who have joined their lives to Jesus through faith and repentance and joined their lives to other believers out of love. The church is made up of sinners who become saints because they're declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. The church is a holy nation made up of all the nations The church is God's people, His holy people, not because we have intrinsic purity, but because of an alien purity, a purity, a blamelessness, a righteousness that's given to us from outside of ourselves through faith in Christ. In the church, we find God's people who have been called out of the world and into the family of God. God has made the church His family. We're brothers and sisters. Isn't it interesting that the first person of the Trinity is called Father. Father. This is a familiar, excuse me, familial term. We're a family with a father, with brothers and sisters. We have a wide variety of backgrounds. None of us are the same. Some of us are weirder than others. Amen? Amen? But in Christ, the many... Become one. This oneness is what we see when we gather in a gathering like this. This oneness is most clearly displayed on the Lord's Day when the church gathers, when the church assembles, when the church meets, when the church shows up at a certain place at a certain time to do this. The word church literally means gathering or assembly. Ekklesia means an assembly or called out ones. Put those things together. It's an assembly of the called out ones. The church is God's sacred assembly of those who have been called out of sin and called into relationship with God and one another. We're sacred because we've been declared righteous. We're sacred because God has said we are His and everything God names as His is holy. The church, these truths, and I could go on and on. There are some, I forget how many dozens of images of the church in the New Testament. I've just given you a few. These truths mean that the church is not a building to be opened or closed. These truths mean that church is not an event to watch online. Churches aren't content providers. They're families. The church isn't what happens on stage, but is the gathering of God's people. The church isn't some sacred space to go to so we can experience some mystical power of the divine. Rather, the church is a group of very imperfect people who come together to worship God and encourage one another. The church isn't a building we want to be in, but a people we want to be with. Some people think of Christianity as an experience like a monk. Like a monk would have where we have this individual religious experience. And this we think is the essence of being a Christian. Many Christians think their faith is private and personal. An interior thing that they practice by themselves. And of course there is faith in Christ that must be ours. We must have it. But this way of thinking as defining the church, defining what it means to be a Christian, is not found anywhere in the Bible. In Acts, the first Christians, met together. They wanted to be together. They began their week, the first day of the week. They gathered together for corporate worship. Then they met in homes throughout the week. Undoubtedly, they had individually turned away from an old way of life, turned towards Christ and embraced Christ through faith. There was an individual, personal, private component, but they did so as a group of other people who were also doing the same thing. So from the beginning, the gospel has called people together to worship God and to be with one another, to serve and love and forgive and exhort and teach one another. Here's my point. God's intent is that through these gatherings these assemblies or churches, he intends to reveal his character to the world. It's here where his presence dwells on the earth. The local church is meant to be a slice of heaven here and now. So back to my opening question, when I asked you, do you ever wonder what the new heavens and new earth will be like? And when you daydream about heaven, does Does a gathering with your brothers and sisters in praise to God and enjoyment of God and enjoyment of one another, does does that ever come into the equation? Or is heaven more like a place where you get to do all the fun stuff that you want to do but you don't get to do now? Or is it about living with God and his people? That's what heaven is. Living with God and God's people. And the beautiful thing about heaven the church is we get to do it every Sunday. We get a slice of heaven every Sunday. So skipping church because you're tired might be more detrimental to your faith than you realize. And we're all tired. Parents said a doubly hearty amen. In the Old Testament, of course, God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle and temple in a specific geographical spot. Jesus' coming changed all of that. In the new covenant, the Lord's house is the Lord's people, not a spot with a tent or a temple. Jesus stresses this to the Samaritan woman we just heard Maddie read about in John 4. He stresses this to his disciples in Matthew 18 in the context of church discipline, where two or more are gathered. When the church comes together, there I am also. God's presence... And therefore, where God should be worshipped is no longer tied to a spot or a structure, but to a gathered people. The special presence of God is now with the gathered body of believers, whether that may be in a storefront or under a tree, in a massive auditorium or in a living room. The special presence of God is now with the gathered body of believers. And when we start to understand what a church is, we'll no longer see the church as an optional add-on to the Christian faith or just a place where all the super spiritual believers get together to hang out or an evangelistic rally designed to attract as many people as possible. When we understand what a church is, we will see that there's a connection between how we understand ourselves to be the church and the way we worship as a church. The doctrine of the church is what forms and informs our worship. It also protects us from approaches to worship that aren't biblical. Things like liturgical pragmatism. This methodology says churches must do whatever works to get as many people in the doors in order to evangelize unbelievers. Or another approach that might be more common to to us individually and collectively is this consumer mindset that gives us the attitude of a customer rather than a worshiper. Where we have an attitude focused on preferences rather than God. An attitude that leads us to say things like, I didn't really like the music today. Or I didn't get much out of the sermon today. Rather than considering whether the congregational singing or whether the sermon was faithful to the Bible or not and how those truths inform our life and affect our lives. Our understanding of what the church is shapes what we do and how we process and how we think about what happens when we gather. This consumeristic mindset, by the way, is so prevalent. I've literally had people tell me I'm shopping for a church. And I think I know what they mean, but it's unfortunate they use that language. It's nothing new. It's, I think, instructive for us that this has been around for a long time. Eighty years ago in his classic book on spiritual warfare, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis has Screwtape tell his demon student Wormwood that if he can't get someone to stop going to church, then he should try to make him into a taster or connoisseur of churches. Saying, Screwtape says to Wormwood, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. The enemy, of course, to Satan is God. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. A good understanding of what the church is helps us avoid these postures, helps us avoid these attitudes, helps us see that there's a connection between who we are and what we do when we gather. We don't just come together as a group of Christian friends. We come together as brothers and sisters in a covenant relationship with God and a covenant relationship with one another. John, You're like, John, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if you're a member of our church, you signed a church covenant where we entered into a specific kind of relationship where we have privileges and responsibilities towards one another. So when we come together, we're living out our covenant relationship with God and our covenant relationship with one another. We come together for God's glory and our good so that the world might Peer in and see something of heaven in our midst. If you want to dive into this further, I put a stack of these books out in the foyer. It's a new book called Rediscover Church. Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Colin Hanson and Jonathan Lehman. There's a stack out there. Now, obviously, during this pandemic, there are reasons why many won't be able to gather regularly with a local church. Your elders understand that. But if and when you are able, the body of Christ, as the subtitle says, the body of Christ is essential, not incidental, to who you are as a Christian. They say on the back of the book, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. So grab a copy in the foyer if you want to dig deeper into some of these things I'm talking about. I want to move us forward into our gathering. So if this is what a church is, then what should we do when we come together as a church? Should we do just whatever John says we should do? Whatever the elders say we should do? Should we do whatever will get the most people here? Should we do what all the successful churches are doing? Whatever you mean by, uh, by the word success. Again, our doctrine of the church helps us answer this question. God is the one who gathers us. So our worship is a response To his grace, God is the central actor in our church, so then God gets to decide what we do when we worship as a church. If God saves us and gathers us, then God also gets to form and shape our gathering. And remember, by definition, the church is a corporate phenomenon. To be in Christ means to be in his body. There are no Christians who are Christians by themselves, To be a Christian means, by definition, to be in the body of Christ, which must find local expression. Matt Merker, in his great little book, Corporate Worship, Matt Merker says, a church service is not a bunch of individual Christians who happen to be standing next to one another, offering their own worship to God through a private portal of praise. Rather, a church service is a family gathering. End quote. Do you think of church that way? Understandably, coming out of the holidays, many of us us have family situations that are less than ideal. So any notion of a family gathering doesn't sound fun or desirable. But I would reason to say that the head of your family back home is not Jesus Christ. He's not the source and substance of all the members of your family. But he is in the church. He is here. He's our head. He's our, he's our source, our bread of life. The rivers of living water flow to us through him. We, In other words, we have something together that we do not have at home. And I love my family, by the way. I've told Susie at least a dozen times in the last two weeks how much I miss Christmas. <laughs> just goes by too fast. I love sitting around with my family and just doing nothing but talk and sleep and eat, repeat that for a week. I love that stuff. I love that stuff. But we have something here that's different, that's categorically different. Do you picture our gatherings as family gatherings where Christ is the head and the meat This means that when pastors like me plan worship services like this one, I have to ask myself if I have warrant to require the family to do the things that we're doing. In other words, why do we do the things that we do, John? Why are we singing and praying and preaching and reading Scripture and all of these things? Why? Do I have any warrant to require the whole church, you, to engage in these various aspects of our worship? Pastors have to decide each week what their church members will do when we meet together on the Lord's Day. This could leave the church open to doing things that go against their consciences or only doing things because they're aligned with the pastor's preferences. For example, in the Roman Catholic tradition, this would lead to things like praying to Mary. In many Protestant evangelical churches, this could lead to things like pastors making their congregations listen to a politician's stump speech during the corporate worship hour. The question is, again, how does God protect the church's worship? How does God help pastors shepherd their people through worship? How does God ensure that... I don't make you do something against your conscience. How? What's the mechanism that guides pastors as they guide their churches in worship? This is not a trick question. Just yell it out if you know the answer. How do we know what to do? Thank you, John. The Bible. Wow, that's super simple, right? Well, there's more to it than that. Because the Bible says a lot about a lot. But don't miss this fundamental underlying truth of all that I'm trying to do this morning. God governs the worship of His church through His Word. God governs the worship of His church with His Word. This principle has been called the regulative principle. You don't have to remember this term, by the way, unless you just want to sound spiritual and then I would question your pride. But this is a... The, principle, the word is not important. The principle is massively important. The regulative principle has been practiced by Protestant churches for 500 years. <clears throat> you, you might not realize it. It's the principle I've worked from since I became pastor here in 2014. It's a simple principle. It basically says this. Scripture regulates the church's worship. The regulative principle. Scripture regulates the church's worship. It's based on a conviction that God hasn't left it up to us to decide what's good for us. To decide how the church should worship. It's based on a conviction that God has revealed these things to us in his word. Now, the regulative principle doesn't tell us everything. We must see it more like a posture than a list of rules. The regulative principle doesn't mean that scripture dictates every detail or form of worship. It simply says that scripture tells us what we should do in public worship, not that it gives us every detail about how to do it. Please don't miss this. The regulative principle doesn't tell us how we should do everything what we do. It does give us the what though. It's often described in terms of elements and forms. The regulative principle gives us the elements, the things we must do. It doesn't give us the forms, how we should do them. If you've been in other churches around the area, churches you grew up in, certainly churches overseas, you've worshipped in ways that are very different from the way we worship here. And what I'm not saying this morning is that our worship is somehow better or superior because we do things a certain way if you've been to a church service that sang the glorious truths of the gospel, you were obeying the regulative principle. If you've been in a worship service that prayed publicly, that preached the Bible, that read scripture out loud and practiced the ordinances together, you've been in a church that practiced the regulative principle, knowing it whether they knew it or not. It's so beautiful to see the diversity of forms. I love it overseas when you go to worship and you're like, this worship is nothing like our worship. But, it's, but, but isn't it interesting? If you've been in that situation, there's also something intangibly beautiful about it. Why? Because it's a family gathering. They're singing and praising and praying and preaching, all the same things that you hold dear. You just might be doing it in a way that you're not. Used to. The regulative principle says that churches should do what Scripture commands us to do <clears throat> when we gather for worship. It's important to note, as Professor D.I. Carson does, that those who adhere to this principle and those who don't often have more common content than either side usually acknowledges. He also points out that there's no single passage in the New Testament that establishes a paradigm for corporate worship. This is undoubtedly true. There's no passage that says, do it just like this all the time everywhere. It's just not in there. And those who might have issues with the regulative principle are often, as I just described, doing all the same things that Scripture tells all of us to do. We have way more common content than we might want to admit. But those like me, like your elders, who use the regulative principle believe that when we, as your elders, lead God's people in worship, we are in some sense binding your conscience to participate in each part of the service. And that the only thing that should ever bind your conscience is the Word of God. And so we seek to do in worship what the Bible says we should do, not just what we want to do. The Old and New Testaments are full of examples about God caring about the how of His people's corporate worship. There's, there's Aaron and the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, where Aaron led the people of Israel to worship the Lord by bowing to the golden calf. The incident of Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12 where the first king of the northern tribes of Israel sets up two golden, two golden calves, one in the far north and one in the south, so that people could go to worship the Lord there without going to Jerusalem. We read this and we think, man, this is ridiculous. He literally said, hey, I don't want the people to go down to Jerusalem and their hearts to be led astray and them, them uh, give their loyalty to the southern tribes. And so what I'll do is I'll set up some golden calves, just like Aaron allowed in the uh, wilderness, In Exodus, I'll set up these golden calves and all the northern tribes can go worship the Lord there. Do you see what's wrong with that? The golden calves are obviously a problem. That's one thing that's wrong. But the most fundamental thing that he, King Jeroboam, got wrong, and Aaron, is that they were trying, they were assuming that you could worship the Lord rightly in a wrong way. You see they weren't trying to get the people to worship the calves per se. They wanted the people to worship Yahweh through these calves. They were mixing the worship, the right worship of the one true and living God with the wrong worship of the nations. Wrong ways to worship the right God. We come to the New Testament Jesus taught the woman at the well, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus was saying when he said that, that true worship is not just sincere. It doesn't matter how good you felt, how many goosebumps you got, how pure your heart was. Though none of that is bad in and of itself. Jesus is saying that true worship is not just sincere, but it must be consistent with who God has revealed himself to be. True worship must be in spirit and in truth. The Samaritan woman thinks that God should be worshipped on that particular mountain there in Samaria. Jesus tells her, no, God must be worshipped through the spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying? He's saying no uncertain terms, that there's a right way and a wrong way to worship God. He's saying that worship must be regulated by revelation. God reveals himself to us, and then we respond to him in worship according to his revelation. Think back to the Garden of Eden where we've lived. Not literally, that would be nice. For the last couple of months in the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, Adam and Eve were given instruction on how they were to relate and engage with God. God tells Adam, don't eat from this one tree. You can have everything in the garden, but don't eat from this one tree or you will die. So before sin comes into the world, God is already giving them shape for how they should engage with Him. He's regulating the ways that they'll relate to their Maker. You see, God is transcendent. He's above us and incomprehensible. So all we know about him, we know because he's revealed it to us. Therefore, why should we trust our ideas for how to praise this transcendent, incomprehensible God when we gather with his people? We are not smarter than God. We don't know what's best for us. God knows what's best for us. For us, So, the regulative principle, to summarize, keeps us from planning worship services by asking, what would you like to do? Hey, church, email me all your suggestions, which, by the way, I'm open to suggestions, okay? But the regulative principle says it doesn't matter what your pastors or the congregation just want to do. It doesn't matter what we might assume would reach the most people. Rather, this principle leads us to ask, This more fundamental question, what has God called us to do? What has God instructed us to do? When planning our worship services, thankfully, I don't have to start with a blank canvas. If that was the case, y'all would be in trouble because I am not creative at all. Amen? You guys don't know me very well. The creative side of my brain doesn't work. (laughs) <laughs> like everything is always analytic all the time. So thankfully, when I sit down to plan a worship service, I don't have to get all these great ideas and worship, get this juice flowing to know what we should do in worship, this creative juice and energy flowing and you know, try to put my pulse on the finger of the congregation and the contemporary Christian scene and the culture and fit all these things together and put them on paper for a worship service. I don't have to do any of that. There's no blank canvas because... God has already written in permanent ink on that canvas, showing us how we're to engage with him when we gather together. So here's where we're going and where we will land. What are we supposed to do? You're like, okay, John, I get that. Thank you for belaboring those points. What are we supposed to do? What does the Bible say? What elements of worship should be included in our church's liturgy, our church's Order of service. Well, our church has followed the Protestant Reformed tradition here. In our worship gatherings, we want Scripture to give our services shape and be our substance. So we want Scripture to guide us and fill us. So in our worship gatherings, we seek to do five things, four of them every week, one of them sometimes. We want to read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. Did you get all that? Let me say it again. Read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. Let's go through these elements one at a time. Number one, read the Bible. We read the Bible out loud to one another because Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. You might grab your worship guide. I get most of you don't read this. It might be helpful if you started looking at this every Sunday, before, during, and after the service. It tells you exactly what we're doing every single week. How we've ordered our liturgy or our worship. You'll notice that not counting the Scripture that is read during the sermon, we have three different public readings of Scripture in our services. We call the church to worship with Scripture. It's called the call to worship there on the second line under the welcome. Why? Because we want Scripture, excuse me, we want to be reminded that God in Scripture takes initiative in our services, that God calls the meeting to order. Then later in the service, you'll see Scripture reading. Today, Maddie read John 4, 16 through 24. We have a longer passage read that usually, to the best of my ability, corresponds to the sermon in some way. Why? In order to train our minds that there is a unity in Scripture. So I'm not like opening the Bible, picking a passage and saying, let's read that one. There is a way that that Scripture reading corresponds to the sermon. Sometimes it's brought out explicitly, sometimes not. By the way, we think anybody can do that portion of the service. So I literally just go through the member directory. You can say no. If people do all the time, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I ask you, do you want to do the scripture reading on Sunday? Great. Then you do the scripture reading as Maddie did so well this morning, and you serve our congregation through doing that. Then you'll notice at the end of our service, we have the benediction, which is fancy for a blessing from the Word of God. It's a blessing and an exhortation from Scripture that closes our service. Why do we do that? Because, you might notice, I hope it's clear. If not, I'm making it clear now. We want God to have the first word and the last word in our worship. We want Him to be the one who, His voice to be the one ringing in our heads when we leave this room. So when Mason reads that benediction, that's not a throwaway verse or two. That's a Intricate part of our service and our worship together. <clears throat> so we read the Bible because Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Secondly, we preach the Bible because, again, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Second Timothy 4.2, pastors are commanded to preach the Bible to their people. Expository preaching or a mode of preaching that exposits or exposes the main idea from a particular point of or particular passage of Scripture is what we seek to do here most of the time. Obviously, I'm not doing that this morning. This is very topical. Usually, we'll have one text of Scripture where my goal is to explain that text, bring out its meaning, and apply it to our lives. If there's no explanation, it's not expository. If there's no application, it's not preaching. We don't just need more information. We need need to know how the Word of God, we need to know what it says. We need to know what we believe, what the book we say we believe in actually says. And we need to know how this sacred, inspired, inerrant text changes and shapes our lives. So we want to explain and apply every Sunday. The people of God need meat, not just milk, to survive. The church needs to hear the Bible exposited every week. God creates and sustains His people through His Word. We can't live if we don't eat. And so we preach the Bible. Thirdly, we pray the Bible. Read the Bible, preach the Bible. Three, pray the Bible. We pray the Bible by offering public prayers of different kinds during the service. This is based on texts like in Acts 2.42 when it says the first Christians in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem they met together. It says they devoted themselves, keyword, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. So something they did often and passionately was pray. They were devoted To As you read through Acts, you'll see the gatherings of Christians are almost always praying. Prayer is an intricate part of our church's worship because prayer has always been an intricate part of the church's worship and life together. It's also a part of our worship because by definition, prayer is a looking away from ourselves and looking to God. Prayer is one of the clearest ways we express our faith in God together. Think of it, if we never prayed, we'd be sending this message to each other and to the world that we actually don't need God. So our prayers are expressions of public faith, public expressions of faith. They're also, however, a part of the teaching ministry of our church. You'll notice in your worship guide, third line, there's a prayer of praise and confession every week. Your elders try our best to pray a prayer focused solely on the attributes of God and on our sinfulness. Sometimes, every third week, we do a prayer of thanksgiving. We didn't do one today. We'll do it next week. Every Sunday, we have a prayer of petition, a longer prayer, where we ask God, petition God, for various things in the world, in our city, in our church, and other churches. So when we do this, we're teaching you that In the Bible, there are different kinds of prayers. The Bible has all sorts of prayers. Just read the Psalms, you'll find all sorts of prayers. We want you to know that there are lots of ways to pray, that we should be praying. We also want to pray so much in our church that I love this classic Mark Dever. He says, we want to pray so much that nominal Christians will grow bored talking to the God they only pretend to know. Again, this is not as Jesus warns us against. Don't make long prayers in public just to be seen by others so they see how wonderful you are and spiritual you are. That is not what we want. That is not the goal. That is not the heart. Our goal is a passionate, developing a passionate culture of prayer. Through praise, confession, thanksgiving, petition, we want to be a people of prayer. So we pray publicly and we pray a lot in our services. Fourthly, we sing the Bible. Read, preach, pray, sing. We sing the Bible by obeying Paul's command that we should address one another or speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Ephesians 5.19. Then in a parallel verse, Colossians, Paul connects our singing with the teaching ministry of the church, saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3.16. So our songs should reflect the word of Christ and teach and admonish us in sound doctrine. Our songs are part of the teaching ministry of our church, which is why I usually, sometimes with Mason's help or other elders' help, I usually pick our songs because it's part of the teaching ministry of the church. How do I know that? Because I know and I'm not offended, I got over this a long time, I know that you won't remember 97.5% of what I'm saying right now, but you're likely to remember some of the songs that we've sung. You're likely to even be humming them. If you might not remember all the words, you'll be humming them later. What's up with that? Because God gave us music to teach, to instruct, to live in us, remind us of our God and His gospel So we take songs seriously. We seek to sing songs that are rich in theological and gospel content, not just ones that are popular or familiar. The church is built up and encouraged as we remind ourselves of the great truths of the gospel, as we sing to one another. This is crazy that in Ephesians 5, Paul says, speak to or address one another in these songs. And then he says, making melody in your heart to God. Do you see the multidimensional aspect of the singing? We're worshiping God. We're making melody in our hearts. It's a subjective, inward experience that we're having with God. And it has, it has this horizontal aspect where we're literally singing to each other. I don't have this privilege sitting up here in the front, but do you ever just look around while people are singing? Don't make it awkward Just stare at one person, you know. Do you ever just look, look around the room? I know for me, just hearing the voices of our church singing is so encouraging to me. I think this is why those 15 or 20 minutes of our service is when my faith is probably the strongest all week long. Because we're singing to one another. This is why we emphasize congregational singing. This is why we don't put a spotlight on Mason and dim the lights. We're singing together. Mason is leading us, no doubt, and others but we're singing together. The main instrument in our worship through song is us, the congregation. Singing reminds us that we're not alone, that the truths we believe aren't just ideas in our heads, but realities that have gripped our hearts and changed our lives. Singing unlocks the emotions God gave us to glorify and enjoy Him with. You're like, John, I'm not a very expressive person and I don't really do emotions. Okay, fine, but when we close our service in just a moment or two, I would encourage you to work up every ounce of energy you have to sing to King Jesus, oh, how good it is, with all the energy and emotion you can. And I'm not talking about you know running out around the room and getting excessive and all of that stuff. I'm talking about letting all of who you are be engaged in worship Amen. and not just with your head repeating words on a screen because you know you're supposed to. We edify and encourage one another when we sing these songs like we actually mean them, like we actually believe them to be true. So we sing the Bible. We read, we preach, we pray, we sing, and then finally we see the Bible. We see the Bible every so often in our services through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are dramatic presentations of the gospel. They're pictures, visible Pictures meant to reveal the realities of the gospel. The bread and juice, for example, portray visibly Jesus' body and blood given for the forgiveness of our sins. The water of baptism portrays our dying and being buried and then being raised with Christ and our being cleansed of our sins. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are where the gospel is spoken to us in tangible form, the visible signs and seals of the new covenant, the physical reminders that we belong to God and to God's people. Now you might notice very quickly that congregational readings didn't make the list. Well, it's because they're not directly commanded in the Bible. We do a congregational reading a couple times a month. Today we read the Ligonier Statement on Christology. Why? Why? Well, because it's part of our teaching ministry. It's one of the ways that we speak to one another and teach one another, Colossians 3. We teach one another the great truths of our faith. We declare what we believe together. We declare that we're we're united by sound doctrine. We believe these things together. And we also believe these things with, as Mason reminds us, we believe these things with believers For 2,000 years, believers all over our city today, believers all over the world today, we are not an island unto ourselves. We are part of the church of Jesus Christ, confessing the great truths of Jesus Christ with His body, universal. So they may not be commanded, but we find that they are prudentially helpful and teaching us sound doctrine. Wouldn't it be cool if your kids growing up in our church began to memorize the Apostles' Creed, began to memorize the Ligonier Statement of Christology? They knew their God and could articulate that truth to others. Now, I struggled to decide whether to preach this message today. <clears throat> uh, after talking to Nick and Jared earlier in the week, I decided to go ahead and do it, obviously, here we are, because I wanted to give sustained attention to not only what the church is, but how that informs what we do as God's people. If we are indeed a family, and if it's true that families have life-shaping effects on us, then it stands to reason that your worship this year will have a life-shaping effect on you. Your worship this year will have a life-shaping effect this year. You will be formed and shaped and discipled by something this year. Something's going to shape you. Something's going to mold you. Your friends or family, your buddies, your coworkers, your roommates, the news cycle... The world wants to train you in a certain way. However, if and when you give yourself to regularly worshiping with your local church, according to scripture, you set up defenses against bad training and you start drinking from a spring of living water that your thirsty soul needs. And again, I don't know about you, but it seems that my soul gets thirstier day after day. It seems that I need worship on the Lord's Day more every week than I did the week before. So, brothers and sisters, friends, who may not even be members of our church, friends who may not be believers yet, if you'd like to know more about what following Jesus and worshiping Jesus and being part of a local church is all about, ask the friend you came with. See me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about this whole Christianity thing. But brothers and Sisters in Christ, this year, give yourself to God and give yourself to your local church and watch where He takes you. Watch how your life is shaped and formed and molded and crafted more according to the image of Christ as you devote yourself to a basic and regular discipline of worshiping with your local church. Now, quickly, I also decided to preach on this because I want you to know why we do what we do. And I want you to have a model to follow after I'm dead. And I want to help you know what to look for in a church if you ever leave this one. I want you to think carefully about how the doctrine of the church shapes what the church does when it gathers We need God, and we need each other. The primary place we find Him is when we gather together to read, preach, pray, sing, and see the gospel. This gathering is not incidental, brothers and sisters. This gathering is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. I have no idea what you mean when you say you're a Christian, but you're not regularly worshiping with other brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that even mean? It just means you don't want to go to hell one day. You're not committed to a family You just want the family's goods. This gathering is our family. It's life-giving because it's it's built on and, and driven by the Word of God. There's nothing like this gathering on planet Earth, not because we have the best technology, but because we have the best Christ. We have the infallible Word of God. This gathering is meant to give us a glimpse of heaven every single Sunday. So weary saints, come to church regularly see a piece, a slice of heaven every single Sunday when we gather to sing God's praises, to enjoy His presence, to listen to His voice, to be in fellowship and serve and encouraged by one another. Church is meant to show us what life with God and what His people feels and looks and sounds like. This is a sacred gathering. My prayer is it would become an even deeper part of who you are in this new year. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there's such a beautiful gift before us even right now that we are together in your presence. We are brothers and sisters. We are united in Christ We will literally live forever together. Live together forever. Thank you for the good gift of your church. Thank you for ordering our worship through your word. Help us to be faithful to read and preach and pray and sing and see the Bible week after week. Help us to never grow weary or old or bored by these basic spiritual disciplines, may we find a spring of living water every Sunday morning we gather through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And for those, Father, who haven't yet connected themselves and joined their lives to the life of a local congregation, I pray that you would lead them to do so for, for Jesus' sake, and for their own soul's sake for their growth and maturity in Christ. but I pray that you would grow and strengthen us. Lord, as Jared prayed earlier, we pray for those who are hurting and sick and out this morning. We, because we're family, we hurt when our brothers and sisters hurt. And there are lots of people hurting. So help us to be mindful today as we leave that there are many who are not here with us today that need a phone call or a text message or a visit or a gift card or some gesture of love from us. Help us to love and serve one another well. Help us to be the people that you say we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.